Hi, I'm James Dempsey, and welcome back to the Poker Podcast, where we get up close and personal with the biggest names in the game. Coming up in this episode... You want to become a director. Something a little unexpected... Yeah, it was for a million quid. And I didn't really know what I was doing. Plenty of this... I've never poisoned anybody, I don't think. And a whole lot more. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on a single episode. This week is my pleasure to welcome founder and former CEO of the European Poker Tour and now president of Party Poker Live, the man himself, Mr. Big, Hello, John James. Duffy. Before your poker life started, you were still working in TV. It's a pretty cool thing to do. You've directed some pretty famous British TV shows in your time. You know, how did that all come about? It came about very much like poker did, really. I was working as a sort of carpenter, furniture maker in a factory in Wandsworth with a friend of mine. It was just very laid back, didn't make any, but it, I didn't really make any money. So when I got married, I thought, wow, I've got to find a career. You know, I've got to, I've got to, what do I like doing? So I thought, well, I like film, I like television. Why don't I become a director? <laughs> you just decided this at the age of 33 to become a television director. I was trying to work out what to do with my life. You know, I couldn't like go to medical school or anything. Maybe, maybe I could have done, I don't know. But anyway, I quit my job in the factory my mother-in-law absolutely freaked out because she just thought I'd gone mad and I got a like a spreadsheet or not a spreadsheet because computers weren't around there but but I got a like some graph paper I wrote down all these companies that made films and television in Soho and for two weeks I walked around Soho knocking on doors and just trying to get a job as a making tea you know what I mean a runner I worked out I couldn't afford to go to film school because it would have meant a couple of years with no income and Charlotte was pregnant. And so I just schlepped around Soho for two weeks and then somebody gave me a job. Somebody took pity on me, I think, and gave me a job as a runner on a Hovis commercial, <laughs> I remember. Literally, all I was doing was driving the rushes. The rushes as a sort of film come out of the camera. It was in Yorkshire, I remember. It was in uh, Swaledale. Driving the rushes from Swaledale to the, the train station, that was my job, and then stopping traffic occasionally. But I loved it. I just thought it was the best job in the world. And also, I got paid quite well because it was a commercial. I kind of got a name as a sort of a reliable runner, and then I became like a third assistant director. And I'd given myself this five-year plan to become a director, but I'd kind of gone up the wrong route because when you, if you go up the assistant director route in film and television, you end up becoming a producer, not really a director. If you want to become a director, you've got to go and make short films. And so, oddly enough, I won a poker tournament in Russell Square for about 10 grand, and I thought, right, I'm going to use that money to make a short film. By this time, I'm like 36 got two kids so I made this short film load of friends helped and then I used that as like a calling card to send around to production companies and things like that and of course nothing happened nobody nobody was in the least bit interested it wasn't that the short film was bad it was a it was a really well shot film because it was we shot it on 35 mil the cinematographer who was a really good really well-known cinematographer now was moving up from operator to dop and he you know wanted to get something on his show reel so everybody helped and they i didn't pay for anything apart from catering and and film stock but it still cost 10 grand and after about sort of 18 months of hawking this bloody short film around, I thought, I'm never going to be a director. I'll just have to be 
by this time I was the first assistant director on TV and on film and so I was I was doing pretty well there I got a really good name for myself so I was making good money doing that so if I'd stuck at that I'd have had a very good career you know to you know the, the guy who I was working with at the time, who was my my peer, he went on to you know executive producing sort of all the Harry Potter stuff, and you know done really really well. You know I could have gone that route, but no, I didn't. No, I decided to. I wanted to be a director. So then suddenly one day I happened to send my reel off to Mersey Television, and they asked me to come up to have a go at Hollyoaks. Do you remember that Hollyoaks? That still on Channel Four now. So I got I got a. My first directing gig was directing a few episodes of Hollyoaks and they really liked those episodes and so I stayed there for a year which was a really good place to learn how to direct because you had to work so hard um, and people just let you get on with what you were doing. For, for people outside of TV like myself that seems to me like the workload must be so high there right because you're churning out Again, again, people who aren't familiar with Hollyoaks, it's basically a UK soap. Yeah, um, and you shoot like 10 pages of script a day, you know, it's ridiculous. It's, right, yeah, it's it's huge amount of work, right, per yeah, day. Yeah, massive, and... absolutely massive. So you have to, but I, I had an advantage because obviously I was very used to standing by camera and, and so I thought, I thought in terms of, uh, when you're an assistant director, you're thinking in terms of how quickly you can get things done, whereas the director's thinking how, of quality. So what was great is that I, I, I was very good at thinking quickly on my feet on a film set. For me, it was just very easy and very simple to th- shoot things very quickly. But I also learned a great deal while I was there. So I spent like a year there and learned a huge amount. And then word got round and I managed to, I think I got the thing doing as if down in London. That then got me into a thing called uh, Clocking Off, which was a sort of BAFTA award-winning series. And then I started to get make a name for myself, and I did things like Silent Witness. I, I started doing some serious uh, serial drama for, for British television, which I really enjoyed. And so that's that's really how it happened. It all happened quite quickly. Once I directed a, that first episode of, you know, of Hollyoaks to doing Silent Witness, it was only about a two maybe a two-year period, two-year, three-year period. So it was very, it happened very quickly. And I loved it. What was your favourite thing you worked on then? I think from a fun, from a fun point of view, it was uh, something that was written by a guy called Matt Greenhalge who did a thing called Burn It, based up in Manchester. And the cast were just a really great, they were a great bunch of people, really good fun, and I really enjoyed working on it. And Matt went on to become an incredibly successful writer. He's done some really big stuff now. But that's really how it all happens. I'm a great believer that if you set your sights on something, and I know it sounds crazy, okay, I'll, I want to be a film director, but if you really set your sights on something, you, I think you can. anybody can do whatever they want in life, you know, within reason. I'm still trying to work out what I want to do next. I'm 60 years old now. I don't ever really want to retire. I'm not really the type of person who will sit on a beach because I, I like interacting with people a lot. I like working. It's nice to have goals. It's nice to have projects. I still, you know, wander around walking the dogs, wondering what, you know, what I'll do once Party Poker Live. You know, once I've achieved all the goals, you know, we've got a five-year target there. So it's not. this isn't going to be until I'm 64 or something like that. Right. But is, is it possible then when, when you do finish these five years that we'll see the feature film directed by John Duffy? I don't know if I do a feature film. It'll have to be something that I've written myself, I think. It won't have anything to do with poker. I think it will be something, a very personal project. So maybe that might be something I do before I peg it. <laughs> if someone gave you the money today to do to go out and make a film, what would it? What would you jump to? 
funny enough, we've been discussing a film about male identity, about what it is to be a man in this day and age in the 21st century, because I think it's very interesting how you know masculinity is changing and also the perception. What, how a man perceives themselves in the world has changed dramatically in the last sort of 25, 30 years. And okay, there was a fight club with a sort of similar sort of thing at the time. I think a lot of men, a lot of young men are very confused about where they stand when it comes to that, you know, what is being a man, you know, now? What does it mean? And how do we change and how do we adapt? It's funny because I was very lucky. I had a mother who was a doctor. You know, she was a very successful doctor and a surgeon at one point in her life. And, you know, I had a very strong woman as a role model, as first, you know, as a yardstick, as it were. So for me, I've always been very attracted to very independent, highly successful women. You know, I realise that women have been undersold massively, you know, in my lifetime. And now that things are turning around, and now that uh, women would probably disagree and say, what do you mean they're turning around? They're turn you know, not turning around at all. But they are, in some areas of life, they are. I think certainly in the media, they're turning around. In some areas of business, they are. It's about how men perceive women in positions of power, how you respond to that. And I think that would be a really, I think that would be a really interesting subject matter. I think I'd quite like to do something on that. But it's, it's such a big topic. I don't know how we're going to do it. But we're already, we're already looking into it. The summer for poker players is mostly about poker. World Series of Poker obviously has just finished. How many years have you done the World Series in a row? I know obviously you didn't play that much this year, but... Is kind of a pilgrimage. It was the year before Scotty Wynn won. Something like 97, 98. Is that when uh, when you got started in poker? Or? No, I, I think I, st I started a couple of years before that. You know, I used to go and play blackjack and stuff like that in casinos in London and some roulette and dice and stuff. I just happened to go into the Victoria Casino. I'd never been in there before. And I remember seeing a couple of tables, perhaps, of people playing a card game, you know, in the corner, which I didn't know anything about. And I walked over there, and one of the guys was very friendly, a guy called Freddie Carl. You know Freddie, silver foxy-haired guy, you know Freddie. You know, and he was really friendly and very, very, yeah, no, no, yeah, you know, you're most welcome, yeah, most welcome. So anyway, I watched them playing for a while, and I thought, actually, that looks like much more fun than blackjack. It's much more social... But it was a self-deal seven-card stud game, and it was like a £50 buy-in. I thought, OK, well, I'd better read up a bit. So I wrote off to the gambler's bookshop in Vegas and got them to send me some books on seven-card stud. And they arrived like sort of two days later. I read the books from cover to cover. I thought, right, that's it. I've got this sussed now. So I went back and sat down in my first seven-card stud game with 50 quid. And they were all self-deal games, right? So th that was terrifying. The most frightening part of it was when the deal came around to you because whenever you made a mistake, people literally would they'd want to kill you. <laughs> but the other mistake I made was that all the books that I'd read were limit seven-card stud. There was no pot limit seven-card stud. So that, that had a huge effect on, on, on strategy. So I used to lose huge amounts of money trying to hit gut shots. But I loved it so much and I just went back there all the time. It was interesting because I'd stopped drinking about sort of, God, a long time ago. And I kind of needed something to replace going to the pub and stuff like that. 
and uh, a social life because so many people's social lives revolve around drink and going to pubs and poker really really slotted right into it it was it was immediate so I lost half my salary every single week in there and then I started to get a little bit of success in tournaments after about a year I suppose and then I just got hooked I still love playing now it wasn't long after that then that you of course took down the first ever poker million in the Isle of Man right yeah, it was for a million quid. And I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> the way I used to play was it, I never bluffed. You know, if I hit a flop, I carried on. And if I didn't, I folded. It was, that, it was just really simple. So people just bet at me and I just fold. I was probably the most exploitable player on the planet. But for some reason, you know, I played in this event at the Vic and I came third and I won like sort of 10 grand or something. And I remember what happened, Ramin Sai, there used to be a wonderful Omaha player at the Vic called Ramin Sai, sadly he's dead now. Gary Jones used to say he was like the, probably the best Omaha player in the world, and he probably was because he just never stopped winning in the cash games, here and in Vegas. They had to use all the cash game tables for this small tournament, and it was like a £200 buy-in tournament, and I said, oh, I not really can't be bothered, I'm going to go and play some roulette. And he said, look, why do you play the tournament? He said, you'll, you'll save money, you know, you, instead of blowing money on the roulette, you, you might have a chance of winning something in the tournament. Anyway, he was right, I came like second and won eight grand or something, and the following weekend was the Poker Million. I had no intention of, you know, I didn't have the money to play 7500 to buy into a tournament. I remember saying to Charlotte, I said, look, I really feel I'm going to win this. And she obviously said, look, you're insane. You've, you've, I think you've gone mad. We've got friends coming this weekend. You know, you were going out for dinner or whatever. And I said, no, look, I really, honestly, I definitely know I'm going to win it. A friend of hers said, you know, you should let him go. Let him go. You know, he might be right. And anyway, the rest is history. I went over there and I just knew I was going to, it was a really strange feeling. I just knew I was going to win it. It was like destiny. And because it was a million for the winner, right, and it was a smaller field, it had a huge pay jump, is that right, between first and second? Yeah, it was 900k, and you couldn't, there was no, no deals. You had security guards attached to you. So Barry Hearn assigned security guards to all six finalists. If you were heard discussing a deal or if you anything like that, you were going to be immediately disqualified. And these guys would follow you to the toilet. You know, they would follow you everywhere. So I ended up playing Teddy Tool heads up for £900,000 and crushed him. (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons I think I won the final, players were right. I mean, I did play incredibly tight. But because I was a TV director, at that time I was directing a thing called As If, which was a really popular TV show here in the UK on Channel 4. In fact, I was meant to be editing it when instead of playing that tournament. Because it was in a TV studio, I felt incredibly comfortable. I really felt at home. And not only that, what happened, because it was live on Sky, it was actually broadcast with a, you know, with a delay on Sky. It wasn't a massive delay. It was like sort of 10 minutes or something. I'd say after about half an hour's play, I think we'd only seen about two or three flops. And I remember thinking consciously, this is a really boring for the viewer. So I said to myself, the next person that raises, which unfortunately for Tony Bloom happened to be him, I'm going to call. If I've got any sort of reasonable hand, I'm going to call. And then he raised. I didn't know what he had. no idea. I had like Queen Jack off. And the flop came down ace to seven or something like that. Okay. So I've got nothing. I wasn't even suited. And Tony Bloom bet like half the pot. 
and I just moved all in. <laughs> there was something about the way he looked, I remember, but he, and I thought, well, I'm just going to move all in because it's much more exciting than just folding for the viewer. And it worked, okay. And so I won that, I won that pot. Absolutely no equity at all if he had an ace or aces. And I did that four times. And what it did was it made me feel so confident by that, that stage of the tournament, everybody thought I had absolute stone-cold nuts, you know. And so they were all folding whenever I, whenever I raised or re-raised, you know. And that's, that's the reason I won, because I was directing a television show, not playing a poker game. Tapped into real work rather than poker. Yeah, yeah. I remember uh, Jeff Duval, a lovely guy from the, the Vic, who I knew, and Alan is his mate. They were convinced, and probably still are convinced, that I had an earpiece in and the, the camera crews were actually telling me what everybody had. They just couldn't believe that I, that, that I could have played the way I played. You know, you came into poker as a TV guy and then I guess people would know you most in poker for the EPT. How did that come about where you decided that you were going to set up your own tour? When I won the million, we put away £300,000. The children's school fees fund and it was in a joint account, I remember, with my wife, and I thought it seemed like a sensible thing to do at the time. But then somehow I realised I was able to take money out of that account without there being two signatures. So you can imagine how long it lasted. So unfortunately, I blew the school fees fund for the kids. Disgraceful behaviour. I mean, it was really bad at the time. I knew what I was doing was really, really bad. Back then, I was a much more degenerate and, you know, suffering uh, than than I am now, I think. Once Charlotte found out and once she'd confronted me about it, I thought, right, I've got to do something to get out of this hole. You know, I've got to do something to get out of this mess that I've got us into. What could I possibly do? You know, so I was thinking, and the WPT had started in the US, I knew a bit about poker, um, I knew a lot about television, and so I thought, right, I'm going to set up the EPT, the European Poker Tour, because it just it just made natural, you know, real sense, because they called themselves the World Poker Tour, but they only had one stop in the Aviation Club in Paris. That was it. There was no other stop. I think maybe there was a cruise. I think there might have been a cruise on it, yeah. I started at the Vic and I said, look, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of doing... So I set up a company the way you do. I drew all the... Lo- In fact, all of the logos, the EPT logos that you see and the LAPT and all of those lozenge-type logos, I remember drawing them on the kitchen table. So I set up the company, registered the company, blah, 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 and then the rest is history. I, you know, I went around all the casinos in Europe. I got their approval. Once those contracts were signed, I went and did a... I went around to TV stations, got a production company involved, Sunset and Vine, and then off we went and it was just a great journey and it just it was brilliant I mean we couldn't have done it without poker stars I think poker stars were SI Mark who I still have an enormous you know respect for they helped a great deal financially you know with the logistics but for the first two or three years I was doing it completely on my own then the wonderful Kirsty Thompson who you know very well came on board and we did it together and we had just such fun for both the first seven or eight years of the tour it was amazing every everywhere we went I mean sometimes we had like 13 or 14 events a year and it just grew and grew and grew and became overtook the WPT and then Pokestars took it over you know and on we go with chapter two which is uh you know Party Poker Live. 
this brings us obviously full circle back to, to Party Poker Live and you are the president of Party Poker Live. And it's almost like you have a second chance, right, to create another tour. Is it a case of I'll just copy what I did with EPT or you, maybe mistakes you made through the years and not make them again or...? I'm not sure that we we made that many mistakes. I think there was there were a few locations that we went to that we probably shouldn't have done. I think having a free bar in Dublin was probably a mistake, <laughs> things like that. When the guys approached me a year and a half ago and said, look, would you consider coming on as president of Party Poker Live? It wasn't something, you know, I had to think about it because I'd only, I'd actually gone back to directing. I'd just directed a, two episodes of a series for Netflix and ITV. And I'd really got that bug again. You know, I hadn't done anything for 14 years. It just so happened that a producer, a friend of mine, I'd contacted a few people saying I was interested in directing again. I used to be all right. I'm pretty good at it. And so I, I did that and I, I really enjoyed it. And so I kind of thought, no, I don't know, do I really want to do this again? I think you should, I'm a big believer in re- people reinventing themselves. If You know, if you're not a lawyer or a doctor or something like that, I think it's really important to sometimes, maybe every five years, change your journey, you know, take a different route in life, you know. And so going back and doing something that I'd already done didn't didn't really appeal to me that much. But when I figured out who was involved and how much I liked them all and how much I respected them, I realised it was going to be fun, you know, and once I realised it was going to be fun, I just thought, actually, what the hell, I'm just going to do this and, it's, and it'd be great. So, you know, what we've achieved so far is is incredible. But, you know, a lot of it's not down to me. It's, you know, mostly the the legwork and all the work is really done by other people. I just am very much a figurehead here now. I worked seven days a week, you know, 18 hours a day on when setting up the EPT. You know, it was really, really hard. Now it's completely different. There are a very large team of people, each of whom have, are very, very good at their jobs. People ask my opinion, obviously, and then just ignore it. I don't mind that so much. It's fun. It's really good fun. So you see a sort of role there just maybe to oversee things and, and help out when needed? Because I heard a rumour, John, that the only reason they gave you the job was that you turn up to the events and play the cash games. But the difficult It's a really difficult one, that, because I do turn up to the events, I do play the cash games, and obviously I do lose money. So it's difficult because I think there was, a, there was a period of about three months where I was definitely losing more than I was earning. And that's never a good thing. It's probably true. I know there's a few people that love to see me playing cash games. And I don't mind that. I enjoy it. Look, I enjoy playing in them. Sometimes I, sometimes I win. Of course, uh, aside from you, Another huge name who's joined the the sort of party poker live brand in in Mike Sexton. Obviously, he was synonymous with the World Poker Tour, the commentator for what, fifteen seasons, I think, sixteen seasons. But not just that. I mean, Mike's look. Mike's a legend in his own right. Obviously, I've known Mike and loved Mike for a long, long time. I think he's a wonderful person. You know, effectively, he created party poker. I mean, he was he went out to India when they started. You know, with all the original founders, you know, Vikram and Rupam and all that lot. He went out to India and he he advised the you know software developers on what was going on. And so he was there from the very start. It's only natural that he should be back in the fold. And he's just such a great ambassador because he's just still retains an enormous amount of enthusiasm for the game he's a natural born commentator he's an amazing person 
poker's in his blood. He just loves the game. He he just plays all the time. You know, he still plays, comes to events and he plays tournaments. You know, he will play main events. I don't play main events because it's, it's my, you know, the, the live events is my area. I'll, I'll play side events, but I very rarely play main events because I think it's, it would be very odd if I won it. I think players would totally understand it. We might to win. It's great to have him back on board again because he's just, he's full of energy. You know, he gives us all advice. It's great to have him. A lot of people who wouldn't know Mike personally would probably know him, obviously, from the World Poker Tour and other stuff. And he, it might appear fake, that enthusiasm, but you're right. I mean, I was I shared a table with him this summer at the World Series on day one of a Omar high-low event. And that enthusiasm was even there then. You know, just the whole way through the day, he's talking to everyone at the table, and that's the kind of guy he is. And obviously carries so much credibility with him, having been involved with Party back in the early days and World Poker Tour. So now him obviously lending his name to Party Poker Live Tour it's obviously a huge bonus, especially, I guess, in America, maybe where you yourself aren't as well known. Yeah, no, I mean, he's huge. Mike's huge in America. You know, he's been on television, you know, wall to wall, you know, on, on, you know, Travel Channel all over the place all the time in Poker's heyday. But he's still, you know, you still see people coming up and asking for his autograph all the time. You know, almost as much as people come up and ask Daniel for his autograph. You know, and I think uh, there are still a lot of fans out there. And I, I think that a lot of people really like televised poker albeit i think the future for you know for poker is actually streaming i don't know what how espn feel you know about carrying it on i'm sure they'll probably still carry on doing it and putting it on their channels but but i think the the future of it is really is really live stream but it's interesting because espn have gone that way and that they just have a live broadcast for hours on end of the world series main event which is pretty cool and it's it's almost impossible to fathom that happening even just three or four years ago, I guess. We used to have the main event, final table televised live, but to have day one, day two, etc., televised live in America is pretty incredible. And, and it is off the back of how popular streaming sites have become, especially when it comes to video gaming and esports, I guess. It's transitioned out to poker. And, and it is so addictive to watch. I know when you haven't been at the party poker live events, some of the streams... It is, and I think the thing is about live, live is so much more complicated to make as well, you know? You know, if you shoot loads and loads of footage of games, you can edit it out and you can make it into a real, you know, tight, really exciting one-hour show. People have always been afraid to do live because there's so much dead time in a poker game. But I think that once players... Predominantly, it's watched by players now, let's face it. So people understand what's going on and they fill in the gaps. You know, they're constantly thinking about what might be happening at any particular time. The way that TV poker seems to have gone... Now, um, I got first got into poker watching Late Night Poker. I always remember the, the start of every episode would be Jesse and Barney sitting there talking, and Jesse would ask Barney to explain what the dealer button is and what the blinds are. <laughs> These days, when you're broadcasting poker, you broadcast with the assumption that people understand what you mean by ranges and defending the big blind and all this sort of stuff, three bedding, etc. And I think that's the way it has to be now. Yeah, I think it has to be the way it has to be. I think if people have an interest in poker, they're going to play it regardless. So there was a period in 2001, 2002, 2003, where television was a huge sort of acquisition tool. The single reason that party poker were as big as they were was effectively because of television and because of Mike and because of, you know, WPT. You know, it was huge. They were so much bigger than poker stars in the States. They were massive. That solely was down to, you know, the power of television. And awareness and obviously making people aware that this game was out there because, you know, when I first started playing, I think you could probably number the, the players around the world, probably like 500 players around the world. It was ridiculous. It was, they, you knew them all. And then it's just, what is it now? It's like 100 million people have tried the game, you know. 
and a lot of people still love it. If you are finding players who haven't played the game yet, if you're if you're looking for new players, then maybe tapping into people who didn't play poker because they saw it as something different to what it is. Obviously, there's a huge similarity between video gaming and esports and poker, and I guess this is a you can tap into those kind of people who maybe didn't play poker. They didn't try it because they didn't quite understand what it was, but now they're seeing it as a as a gaming thing more. I think you have to see it as a different thing now. You have to see it as a challenge. I think even if you're a player, even if you're somebody like me, there's no point me just carrying on playing endlessly, donating money. If I want to win, and obviously there were times when I, certainly in tournaments where I used to do quite well, but nowadays if I want to win, I have to study. I have to think about not just putting somebody on a pair of tens. I have to consider the range of hands that they might be playing, you know, raising under the gun with, you know, under the gun plus one or on the button, you know. And I have to start considering that. And I think that's the future of the game. I think this is not to make it not enjoyable. I think it, what it comes is it becomes a challenging game and it can still be really enjoyable. But I think what ha- what I've found is that I still love poker, but I'm having to think about it a bit more and I'm having to actually, you know, study. And there are so many facilities available now where people can learn the game better than they do. And if you look at chess, for instance, chess is an incredibly popular game internationally. It has been for centuries, you know, thousands of years. Millions and millions of people play chess all around the world and they study it and they want to get better. Why can't people do the same with poker? There's no reason why not. Is that you can spend an hour a day reading, studying, watching videos on training sites, all this sort of stuff, and it becomes interesting. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win because there's a lot of very clever players out there. It becomes a challenge, and I think a lot of people love that mental challenge. What if you could what, have a mental challenge and you actually happen to win a seat to a, a, or a, a flight and a package to Bahamas? What's not to like? You know, there's there's a great incentive to actually get better. And also, the community thing is really really important. I think. What I really like about it is community. If you go to Dust Till Dawn, you get this wonderful sense. It's just such a great community there. It's like walking into Cheers. And I think what we're, what I've been trying to do and what we've, everybody's been trying to do is export that community around the globe so that you have the same feeling and the same sense. So we've got partners all over the place and you know we're trying to create a, an international community of poker players. That's a really worthy thing to do, I think. What do you see as perhaps the next issue that gets tackled in poker? Is there anything that you would like to change in poker? Headphones and smartphones. I'd like to change smartphones in society, actually, not just in poker. I'd like there to not be smartphones and, and, and headphones and other devices at at any table, and particularly cash games. Yeah. I don't understand how cash... Uh, how, how you can have smartphones in cash games. It's, it's absurd. What's to stop somebody just texting yeah. somebody, I, I passed the Acer clubs. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. it's insane. I, I don't understand why. And, and okay, if you, wanna, if you want to, you know, I think that would, that's what I would really like. But I'd kind of like that. I'd like that in society anyway. I think the younger generation have a real problem with social media and with with carrying these mini computers around with them all the time. I think you don't really feel. I don't think you really feel that you're free or having a holiday until you've actually left your your smartphone behind or in your hotel room or wherever. I think then you feel very liberated, and I think people need to try it a bit more often. I recognise that. 
you know, people say, oh, yeah, but we've got to tweet. I've got to put my chip. There's so much, you know, we've got to keep our chip counts updated on social media. No, you don't. You just don't need to do that. I think if there was a more reliable, maybe if, maybe if you know people had a more reliable way of actually uh, keeping track of chip counts, that might be might be better. I don't know, but I just don't think it should be left to the individual player. And if you're going to do that, just do it on a break. Yeah. I don't think people need every an update every you know two three minutes. So that would I think that's what I would really like to do, and I think um, it would be very unpopular to do it. But I think it's it's, it's in it. I might. I think Matt 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 tried yeah, it. Matt Savage tried it. Yeah, I was going to say Matt. He, he did the, I think they called uh, it a social experiment. I think it was quite successful. I think they called it something yeah. like that. And they, yeah, it was a it was a tournament where you couldn't have headphones or a phone or anything at the table. If you did, was it was it a success? Do you I think know? I think it was a it was a success. I mean, they obviously weren't looking to set a groundbreaking field size. It was more about the people playing the event are going to have a much better time than the people playing a regular event. And I think from that point of view, it was a success. Yeah. You know, even though. You know, even some of the people in that event would be like, well, I, I did need my phone a couple of times, maybe, you know, work issues or family issues or whatever. But they just step away from the table and suddenly you realise you don't need it quite as much as, as you think. And I, I think it was... Ex- but you don't, you think is you've got to remember, I, I, it's not, I'm old enough to remember when you didn't have mobile phones. You know, you just didn't have them. It's not that yeah. long ago. It really isn't that long ago. And, and then the phone, the phone morphed into this computer thing with apps on it and everything. And it's crazy. I mean... <sighs> It's really one we're kind we've kind of dug a hole for ourselves because you know I need the phone now to pay for my parking uh, in London you know I need my phone for you know various other apps or to look at my bank balance or to do this and do that I, I just think in general I think when 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 my kids come down here I I leave a basket by the door so that when him them they bring all their friends down I get them to put their phones in the basket right. by the front door and then they can go and do whatever they want they can go and look i've got loads of stuff for them to do down here we've got motorbikes we've got bicycles we've got you know there's a huge outdoors they can go the beach is only 20 minutes away you know there's so much to do down here and the reason i did that was that I, about sort of a year a year ago i went outside and they were they were all sitting there were six of them sitting outside none of them were talking to each other and each of them was were, were on their telephone yeah and I just said, I just said, right, that's it. If people come down here, that's it. They just leave the phones by the door. You know, it's and they hate it. They really, they really have a big issue with it. But it teaches, it teaches people. People need to recognise how addicted they are to to these little devices. Not just like the poker table, just in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same, I think, the same applies to social media. I think that things are changing. I think I recognise that my two my two boys who are twenty four and twenty six are actually and their peers are actually turning away from Facebook and turning away from Twitter and all the other forms of uh, social media, Snapchat, all of them. They're actually turning away from them and they're starting to just use their telephone as a telephone right. yeah. um, to a ring people up yeah. and just to ring somebody up to say, hey, guys, what, should we go to a pub tonight rather than doing it through any an app? Just ring people up. You having to, People are going to have to relearn and, and work it out. You know, That's what I used to do. People ring me up at home. On the landline and say, you know, where are we going tonight? Which which, which pub? Where which should we? Which game are you playing, in, John? Where are we going to head to? No, but it, obviously, I mean, this is this is a society issue as much as a. But it, it's very important in the poker industry because you're right. The the delays at a table is nothing more infuriating when someone's texting or whatever, or more more importantly than the the small delay in a game, when a recreational player stops having fun at the table, then that's bad for poker 
completely. It's bad for the organisers. It's mm. bad for the pros. It's bad, bad for everyone. And it and it, it's funny yeah, you say that talk because to people because cash games you think is is the one spot it just shouldn't be happening at. I mean, I can forgive people. I don't do it myself. People sit there and listen to music at the table and you know go off in their phone mm. and whatever. Not something I like to do myself, but I can understand it in a tournament because they are boring periods and you're playing with people for a very short amount of time. When you're playing cash games, you're likely to play yeah. a lot of hours with these people, not just on that day, but in the future. And it's kind of crazy not to not to be having a conversation going you know, in a cash game. You... Well, not only that, learning to talk, learning to talk is 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 is, is good. You know, it's, it's interesting. But, you know, a lot. Of, I think going, going back to hatred. I think a lot of the hatred in the world is about is is, is 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 a lot of it's down to social media. I think people are very. I think young people are very. They're very frightened. They're frightened that they, you know, if you, if you don't get enough likes, if you don't get this, if you don't get that, it's a huge pressure on on uh, the younger generation to fit in. People are, generally people want to fit in. You know, when they want to fit in, you know, some people want to be different. You know, massively different, which is fine. That's okay. That they they can be different too, but really. When it comes to social media, I think I've I've gone right off it, right off it. I you know because I waste so much time on it. I know you probably do as well. You know I think everybody does. You know I lie in bed. Some you know if I, the other thing I've trying to do now is actually leave my phone downstairs rather than have it down by my bed. Because right. if I've got it by my bed, I I don't read as much. I really like reading. Okay, I like I like reading books. You know, but um. You know, and uh, I find that I spend half an hour tw- going through Twitter, and then suddenly, because I've gone through it, I'll watch a Doug Pol- I'll see a Doug Polk video or a, a Joey. Ing- <laughs> you know, I really like what they do. Those so they're entertaining yeah. guys, but the trouble is, they're stealing my life. You know, <laughs> that's how I feel. They're stealing my time, and. Uh, there's really valuable time that you can be learning a new language. You can be, you know, you can be reading books. You can be just enjoying, you know, there's so much better things you can do than be flipping through bloody tweets. It's funny, actually, because I remember myself, as a few as a few years ago now, I decided that I was using Facebook too much and stuff. And I just decided as a sort of experiment to shut, uh, like put my account down for two weeks or whatever it was. I just, you know, closed the account. I, I can't remember if you can suspend it, whatever it was. So I just didn't have access to the account. Yeah, long story short, I missed out on buying a piece in someone's action that I always buy 20% of in tournaments. And they cashed, they cashed for about $400,000. So it cost me 80 k to not have Facebook for two weeks, and I've had it ever since. It's funny, I had some, a couple of American friends over staying a, couple, a few weeks ago, and they brought their three kids over. And they don't let their children have smartphones. You know, they're old enough to have smartphones, but they don't let them. And they're the only kids in their school probably that don't have smartphones. But they still get invited to things. You know, they don't, they don't, I asked them, I said, do you feel like you're missing out? And they said, no, we don't. We still get invited. They still play sport. They still, really stable kids, you know, very, they're not missing out at all. So I think parents have a big, huge responsibility. I was dreadful with my kids. I just... You know, I bought my son a PlayStation when he was five years old. It was a, that was a guilt present, you know, I bought. It was the biggest <laughs> mistake I ever made. A five-year-old to give a PlayStation to. And now he has big issues where he's addicted to video games, you know. And he's got to deal with that now. He's 26. You know, he's, he's sit, sitting there on Fortnite, you know, trying to, you know. I say, I, whenever I walk in, he's playing Fortnite. I said, what, what you, what, what's wrong with you? You, you, you? No, no, I'm playing against Keanu. Who's this, Keanu's like an 11-year-old kid in America. I said, yeah, but... 
I know you really wanted me to play. I said, you're 26. <laughs> Tell him you're busy. You're doing something else. You know, it's really, it's like, um, <laughs> you know, I think there are, there are big issues with it all. And I, I know more than anybody because I've got a very, very addictive personality, you know. So if I'd had video games, you know, if video games had been around when I was young, forget it. You know, I literally, you wouldn't see me for dust. I'd be like Cartman. Have you seen that episode of, you know, <laughs> have you seen that episode of South Park where Cartman's playing War Game, uh, Warcraft? <laughs> it's the funniest episode. I don't think I have, no. no. You Look it up. Type sometime. Type in Cartman and Warcraft, it's, and it's the funniest episode. But it's it's funny you say that, and I think this is this is true of a lot of my generation of poker players and younger. Is I I did play a lot of video games when I was a kid growing up, and I think poker tapped into that, and that's what got me maybe as as heavily into poker at, at, at the start of playing poker as I did. I just I suddenly found it and was addicted to it, and it was probably just like another video game yeah i think that, i think that's true of a lot of guys i, I worried a lot about that funny I, I, when i was maybe about five years ago i felt really responsible for for promoting this game and actually creating a huge generation of people who all they do is play poker right and if i look at if i say to somebody like you i say look if you if you didn't have poker right say say poker was suddenly you were told, right, you cannot play poker ever again. You can have nothing to do with poker ever again. I'd like to think that you would find something else to do with your life. Because I'm a great... I, I really like... I like the idea that I have other things in my life. I've always had other things in my life. And that, I lo you know, I love to play poker and I love, to, I love that I'm involved in it. In it. But I also, I also love the fact that I've got other, other interests and other you know, other career choices if I want to do that. Um, there are, obviously, there are a lot of players who all they, all they do is play poker. And I think that some, when, they, when guys reach the age of, like, sort of late 20s, 30, I think they start to think, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Okay. Do I really want to do this all the time for the rest of my life? And the answer is that, no, you shouldn't. You should, you should look for other things to do. Poker will always be there. And poker, you know... Sundays will, you know, I still play poker every Sunday, you know, I, you know, but on online and I, I, you know, on party and I love it. But some, you know, sometimes there'll be a situation where we'll have friends down and I won't play. You know, I, I'll say no, you know, no, I, I won't, I won't play. I won't say, oh, I can't, I can't miss this tournament because it's got this guaranteed guarantee on it. Right. I've managed to say to myself, look, there's going to be next week you know the, the week after mm -hmm. i can still balance it and i think life's all about i think life's about balance and i think um it's great to have this as a game and a and, and a hobby to do you know to, to do but it's i think it's also really important to have other things to do as well and i don't know what you feel about that because you come from what i would say were a group of people all of whom i can name you know you know you know them all as well who Probably, how old were you when you were introduced to, when you've discovered poker? Started playing poker, I guess, late night poker era, maybe when I was 17, 18, I'd imagine. So I had my first online account would have been late 2002, so I'd have been 18. Yeah. Now, the difficulty is, I think when you, when you, when you discover it at that age and when you make money out of it at that age, right, I think it's it's very difficult because people look at you know you have this enormous freedom 
you know you can work you can get out when you like you've got money to go on holiday where you want you can do it if you're successful at it and i think you were you were and, and yeah. you were successful and you know 10 or you know 20 of your friends were equally successful right large very large group and still are very successful but you know i think um I think it's very difficult at that young age to suddenly say to yourself, well, actually, no, I'll just do this part-time and I'll, I'll do something else as well. But I have noticed, what I've noticed is that some of you, some of your peers of that era are looking into other things. Some are looking, you know, there's one guy who's looking into documentary filmmaking. Uh, you know, there's another, you know, other people are, you know, investing in property. Some people are setting up businesses which have nothing to do with poker. You know, Fedor Holtz, you know, who, not that long ago, he, he started up a business which had nothing yeah. to do with poker. It was all about sort of, I don't know, self-improvement or something like that. I think that, um, the, I think it's really interesting to either say, okay, well, maybe I'll do, maybe I'll, I'll use my intellect, because obviously you're all very bright, to do something else, but I but still play poker. So you don't need to leave it all together. You can still, you know, still come back. Um, I think balance is, for me, I think balance is very, very important. I don't know how you feel about that. No, I mean, yeah, I'm with you. For the first, I'm going to say, seven or eight years, when I started playing poker, to playing professionally, to that was all I did. Mm. It was literally, there was nothing else. It was... I'd play. There were even some days where I think, oh, I'll t-, you know, I felt a bit burnt out. I'll take today off, and then yeah, yeah, three hours later, I'd be like, well, what else Gol- am I going to do? Golf. <laughs> <laughs> I may as well jump in and play. And and that that was like a lot of a lot of people around the, at the time. But it, funny, it basically it was when I started playing golf that that gave me a lot of time away from poker, and it was something else that you know, I mean, most people listening, I'm sure, I play golf, but for those who don't know, it's it's not just about playing this game it's 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 such an addictive game because it it's constantly battling against yourself which is kind of like poker you have to keep everything together yourself and you're always and you're competing against yourself all the time it's always about what you've done before and doing better although it was very similar to to poker for me that was a, it gave me a huge amount of balance without, without having to do something else because i could just have these few days where i just wouldn't play poker at all anymore because i just go and play golf and then once i got bored about it switch back to playing poker and, and I know this is not the balance you you were sort of suggesting in terms of a, a job, yeah, like like a job <laughs> or a career, yeah. But it's what do you? How do you? How do you perceive? Actually, I'm going to turn this table around on you now. How do you perceive <laughs> people that have nine to five job? How do I perceive them? Yeah. Do you feel sorry for them, or do you think, oh, they're a necessary part of our community? <laughs> how do you? How do you? How do you? I mean, we could go on for hours on this, but I'm completely against the modern way of life and this concept of the hours have people work and. And how hard people have to work, I think it's completely unnecessary. I used to be like that. I, I used to, I used to say, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't buy into the Anglo-Saxon work ethic. <laughs> that was my, that was my line. <laughs> but I feel like people who do work super hard and don't get time to enjoy the fruits of that labour are definitely missing out on life. And I'm not saying that because obviously poker has given me an opportunity to to make it you know, quite a lot of money for someone in their 20s when, you know, when I was first started playing. To have that kind of money at that age is not something that's normal. And to have it, again, with the freedom to, to spend it and do what you want, definitely... But it's not about money, though. Hold on a minute. It's not really all about money. It's about community. It's about friendship. It's about colleagues. It's about being part of, you know, money can make you the loneliest person on the planet. Sure. But the, the money gives you the freedom you know. to, to to not have to go to work, though. That was the thing. It, it buys you it buys you the free time 
I think I had a very rich life in my 20s that most people in the world would never get a chance to experience until perhaps retirement. I think that's just a shame. That's the way around the world is. And I just don't feel like it's necessary. Um, but yeah, so when I look at someone, not perhaps someone working nine to five, but someone who's generally working themselves into the ground for someone else, I, I do feel like it's a bit odd. Like I, I understand people set up their own business and they work really hard and they, they put their heart and soul into something and that's fine. But working exceptionally long hours for someone else does seem a bit perverse to me. It seems like they've been taken advantage of. I just worry that a lot of young poker players have never experienced that that sort of nine to five. Uh, I'm not saying I'm going to say it's a grind. You know, obviously nobody likes nobody likes to get up for work in the morning. You know, it does it does seem it does seem kind of crazy, uh, if especially if it's a job you don't enjoy doing. But if you're if you're doing something that you enjoy doing, say you work in the National Health Service or something like that, and you feel that you're actually doing something worthwhile and good, you might not be being paid all that much, but you have a wonderful, you know, but you really enjoy you really enjoy your work, you know. To my mind, I think just either doing something good, either working for something which is which is good for the you know people around you, or doing something creative. Like if you want to be a sculptor or a painter or you know make you know documentaries or something like that, I think that's I think that's that's something that people should look into to have as a second string to their bow. I'm not saying that poker shouldn't be a profession. I think, you know, obviously a lot of people have made it their profession and they enjoy it and they travel the world yeah. and they love it. And there is a great camaraderie. There is a good, you know, in a way I used to quite envy you and your group of friends that you had, you know, because I was very much a solitary poker player. You know, I used to turn up on my own and, you know, lose my money or sometimes win. <laughs> sometimes win. And I used to look at you and your, your or your mates, you know, and you'd, you'd all be going off on your skiing holidays or renting chalets here, there and everywhere. I think, oh, this must be such so nice to actually be part of that group of that, you know. Obviously, I was far too old to... Actually, I think one day, I think somebody actually invited me on the, one of your skiing holidays, which was, very, which was very nice. But I used to look at you and think, actually, must be, maybe it's quite nice to be part of that large group of people who, you know, who were discussing things on forums and doing, you know, discussing strategy and things like that. Whereas a lot of people would just saw poker as a me against me against mano mano mano, you know. It was like Yeah. I was one of those players, you know, I just used to turn up. Great to chat to people at the Vic, but it was me against them, you know. I was never really part of a group of other poker players that I would sit down and chat with or share pieces with. Obviously I'd like maybe I'd swap three percent with Barney Boatman in a tournament or something like that. But Barney Boatman and I have never sat down and discussed strategy in our lives. You know what I mean? Ever. You know, we'll tell each other bad beat stories, but never have we ever discussed strategy. It's funny you say that, that it wasn't something that used to happen because just this last weekend when the uh, the Open was on, the golf, there was a lot of discussion about how a lot of the young American, you know, top golfers who are all super competitive against each other, you know, they're the, the top players in the world. They're all sharing houses together whilst they're at the tournament. Mm. Even though, you know, it's very likely they'll be showing down at the end of the week against each other to, to win this title. And it was... It was discussed how, you know, back in the day, there was no way, you know, player Nicholas and Palmer would be sharing a house together. Mm -hmm. You know, they they talk to each other, but they they would. There's no way they'd be going. Oh, what do you think of this hole? How are you going to play this? You know, but I, mm. I don't know whether that's just uh, people are maybe feel like they're more open now. I I don't know. Maybe it's partly what we we're saying about social media before like people share more it's changed dramatically. I think it's definitely become much. I, I love the idea that it's becoming a community. 
No, I, I like the idea of communities, and I do see that there are, you know, there are there are teams, there are like, there are like groups of. You can definitely see the groups of players that all have pieces of each other. You know, the German, you know, groups of German players, the group of Scandinavian players, the groups of English players, the group of American players. You can all see the piece. You know, the people that spend each, that they live close to each other, so they spend time with each other. You know, they they might meet each other and chat about things, and they go away and they they play. They I'm not saying they play together, but they obviously have they swap pieces of each other and they've got an interest in how other people are doing if you've got knocked out of a tournament it's great to have a sweat for you know 10 percent of somebody else and not and to, to, to take that to a further extent obviously we're going to have you know we're going to have staking uh, available on my party poker live as well which means that if you if you're a poker fan and you want to you want to take a part you want to take a piece of jason coon or patrick leonard or or whoever you can take a little slice of their action and it makes it makes the whole thing much more enjoyable i, I like that side of the community but i still also very much think that people you know they they should have other you know other hobbies because there are so many i've just seen so many players especially in america who all they do is play poker yeah yeah, we are obviously going to come towards the end of our time, otherwise we could do this all day. But there is, of course, our regular segment on the Poker Podcast, and that is Feeling Flush. Now, John, we've got a, a few questions here to ask you and just want to get kind of the first answer that comes to your head. So nothing too deep on these. Okay, go on. Okay, so this this is quite a good one for you, obviously, with your background, but what's what's the best movie ever made? Apocalypse Now. Okay, I like it. A bit of Marlon Brando in there. It's a pretty strong film. Yeah. And of course, John, with you on, we have to ask. We'd have to ask, what's the best TV series ever made as well? Sopranos, without a second, without a shadow of a doubt. Wow, Sopranos, two strong ones there. I like it. Okay, here's here's a good one. We've had some good answers for this. What is your worst ever cooking fail? What's my worst ever cooking fail? Um, yeah. It, I'm always always hopeless at making. Bernays or Hollandaise sauce. You're not not very very working class problems there, John. No. Well, that's <laughs> nothing to do with what, what, since when has Hollandaise sauce been working class? It's delicious if you get it right. Well, but it's that's difficult. Saying the opposite, but but so yeah, you're not a sauce man. No. Um, Is there one outstanding one that you've you've done a terrible job of? Not really. I I consider myself quite a good cook. Um, okay. What have I really really messed up? A lamb, I think a, a lamb tagine I once messed up really badly. Um, but I didn't, I've never poisoned anybody, I don't think. I don't. That's good. They've all, they've all lived. The dinner guests have all lived to yeah. tell the tale. Yeah. Okay, John, what about the best song ever released? Lucky Man by The Verve. I like it. Quite apt for a uh, poker podcast as well. Yeah, I love that song. Name one thing you personally would never bet on. I know you like to gamble, so. One thing I would personally never bet on, football. Here we go, just dislike of the sport, I guess. No, I just think it's just so, I just seem so unpredictable. I mean, people, I don't know, maybe it's dislike, um, but I would never bet, <laughs> I don't think I'd ever bet on soccer. Okay, and now my favourite question, John. Three famous people, living or not, but non-poker related, that you'd like to share a table with? Three famous people, living or not, that I'd like to share a table with. God, that's a really tricky one. James Dean. I like it. Another another JD to the mix. Yeah. Um, Einstein. Wow. And Jesus. <laughs> wow. What a what a lineup that be in the game. Yeah. Four-handed with James Dean, Albert Einstein, and Jesus. Yeah. Do you think you got an edge in that game? 
I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Jesus has probably got the edge in that game. Maybe. But maybe. <laughs> Einstein might be able to outthink you as well. But. I think you stop us all playing it. <laughs> that may be. Certainly, ban smartphones. I don't think he wants smartphones. James Dean at the table, quite good actually. I want to get I want to get the fifth seat in this game. Yeah, it'd be good. Oh, you're always welcome in any game I play. You always crush me, but I still like you. Pl- I still like playing with you. I don't think all this all this joking aside. I don't think I ever really get the best of you. I don't lose as much money as everybody thinks I do. But the one um, thing you do, do, John, is you spice the game up. That's, I that's certainly the thing. do. I try to do that. I'd like to. I'd. I'd love to see over the last twenty years. I'd love to see a graph, <laughs> online and live. It would be very interesting. Which you prefer now? You still prefer playing live, I guess. I prefer. I. I, lo- I love playing live, but I. When I'm down here, I like to play online. It's very difficult for me down here because I'm, you know, a couple of hours from London, I'm an hour from Southampton. So I'm a long way from the nearest live poker room. So I've, I do spend a lot of time playing online. And I, you know, I enjoy it. But I still very much prefer live. And that's one of, you know, really the only time I play live now is when I go to, a, a, you know, an event. And it's great. I really enjoy it. It's great to it's great to sit down with people and just play. And I don't play nearly as big as I used to, James. I used to, you know, I used to try to find the biggest game I could possibly find. Now I tend I'm very <laughs> I'm very happy playing. Some you know I'll play one two online sometimes. You know I'll play right. two you know two five. I, I'm not I don't I'm not really going into the sort of ten twenty five. Certainly not online anyway. I think the biggest I play online is probably two five now because I enjoy it and I can I can kind of sometimes hold my own there. Um, <laughs> in live, I probably I don't I don't think I played bigger than in Vegas this year. I don't think I played bigger than twenty five fifty, which is obviously relatively big game. I mean, these are still yeah. big games, but it's still a big yeah. game. But I don't think I I certainly didn't play bigger than that. Uh, more often than not, I found myself playing, you know, five ten or two. I think I played two five at the win. Really enjoyed it. I, I found that I actually enjoy playing. Uh, in smaller games, because because they're much more they're much more fun. Right, yeah. Uh, big know, games is a lot. You have people. Ev- everyone's there being recreational, right? Everyone's there on holiday or yeah, just having a good time. No one's trying to make a living out of the game. No, and they're 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 just enjoyable. Um, and you know, no, and you're not. And if somebody loses five hundred dollars, you know, you're not gonna you're not destroying them. Whereas if somebody loses fifty thousand dollars, you never really know how much money they've got. Um, and that's a lot of money. And also, you know, I've done it myself. I've done it myself where I've lost, you know, huge amounts of money. And I've thought, oh, dear, did I really, you know, did I really enjoy that? Not really, you know. If And if I won 50,000, did it really change my life? Not really. You know, so mm. I just play the game, play to, you know, I think the most, one of the most important things that, uh, is really playing, playing at a level that you can afford and playing and, and, and really, you know, stopping playing if you're not enjoying it. That for that day, you know, if you're not hitting cards and it's you know your card dead, and what I'm trying to learn is actually not to try to force the action if nothing's happening. That's my biggest. Uh, wow. That's my biggest weakness. It's a patient, a patience issue, John. That's always been my experience. You at the table was patient. You, oh, really? you, play, you play good for a couple of hours and then you get bored and <laughs> you know. Yeah. I know, and also if I get one bad beat, that's it. Forget it. I'm I'm off. All right, mate. Well, it's, some, it's something everything battles. I mean, it's it's definitely a thing, isn't it? Anyone, especially when you're playing live poker, because it, it's quite slow. You're playing cash games. Everyone falls into that trap of playing too many games. No, hands. they sure do. Well, obviously, we are back from Vegas. Sochi's right around the corner, so that's your next stop, I'd imagine. Yep, yep. I'm really looking forward to it. It's gonna be it's gonna be really really good fun. 
for sure. Obviously, it's a stop we've been to before. So uh, seeing as we got you on here, I want to know if there's any future plans you can reveal anything in the pipeworks. I'm not going to let the cat out of any cats out of the bag now because obviously there'll be people listening at the competitors. Certainly, there are certainly a couple of stops which I'm very excited about, and you'll hear about them within the next sort of month or two, I suppose. But one in particular is is just going to be amazing. Absolutely incredible. Right, anyway, John, I can't keep you any longer. I guess we'll see you next in Sochi. Really, really good to talk to you. Thank you and goodbye. Bye, mate. Well, that's it for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. I've been James Dempsey, and join me again for the next episode of the Poker Podcast. (laughs) 